Thank you very much, uh, Rebecca. Do please find uh, Romans chapter 8. It's uh, page 1134. Well, towards the start of our service, uh, Nigel used a a form of confession that has this in it. For behaving just as we wish, without thinking of you, Father, forgive us, save us and help us. And that is the problem of chapter 7 of Romans and verse 15. I do not understand uh, what I do. I, I, I behave in ways that are a complete mystery to me, let alone to anyone else. I can go for a frighteningly uh, extensive time without thinking of God, just like that prayer said. It's a distinct problem, but it is, of course, universal. How is it that we can face this vast gulf between knowing what to do and actually doing it. Some of you are um, involved in exams, as we've just prayed. Uh, I've done a lot of exams in my life. Um, I did an old-fashioned thing called an O-level. Then I did uh, A-levels. Then I did S-levels. Then I did an undergraduate degree, and then I did a master's degree. And in all those exams... And I suppose that's what, that's uh, 14, 17, 18, 19, 20, uh, 29 for that one. Uh, In 30 exams and a a dissertation in the Masters, I can honestly say that not once, it may be true that not once did I ever walk alone, but it's equally true that not once did I ever do enough revision. I cannot look back on my life and say, yes, on that paper on the works of Julius Caesar and the Roman wars doing Latin O-level, I finally got around to doing enough revision. Um, and let's face it, if I ask, I'm not going to ask the question in any reality, but if I asked you right now, how many of you ever feel that you did enough revision, you know you're not going to put your hand up because you'd immediately feel the hatred from the rest of us. <laughs> but there. If, if you're here tonight, O oh blessed person who has ever done enough revision, then you are the only person in the room who does reckon that they understand the difference between knowing what to do and actually doing it. For the rest of us, it is a great gulf fixed. And that's just about exams, let alone in behavior. Why is there that gulf? Well, uh, chapter 8, verses 1 to 11 are part of the answer. Uh, Verses 12 to 17 are another part of the answer. The first part, verses 1 to 11, about what it is to live free. The second part, verses 12 to 17, about what it is to live family. Now, I would expect in all seriousness that there are those here this evening who have never known what it is to live free from condemnation. Either condemnation from, from others 
or condemnation from those little voices inside us that say, you will never be good enough. And sadly, the Christian church has a track record of bringing up our children to believe that we'll never be good enough. And I'd expect that there are also here this evening those who may just about have learned in their heads that they are free, but have never really entered into what life is as family before God. Indeed, I'd say of myself, I, have, I feel like I've barely begun the journey of entering upon those realities. Now, if you can honestly say that not only did you always revise, but you uh, know 100% of God's freedom and 100% of God's family, then do have a word with me afterwards, and I'll make sure that you're preaching next time. Chapter 7 has set us the problem. Chapter 8, verse 1, has the answer. And then the first 11 verses explain how they can be uh, the answer, or that verse can be the answer. 12 to 17 explain a different facet of it, and so I want to follow it. Verse 1, therefore, extraordinary therefore, by the way, Look at the last verse of chapter 7. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin, therefore. An odd place to put a therefore. But of course what he's actually saying is the, the therefore follows from the verse just before. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I cannot be condemned because I have been freed. And how has that happened? Well, verses 2 through to 4 tell a story. The outcome of which is that I am in Christ Jesus. It's the summary phrase there in verse 1. And it's always worth saying, of course, Christ is never a surname. Christ is just the Greek for Messiah. I am in Messiah Jesus. And it's worth reminding ourselves of that because with that word Messiah, we're reminded that this hope has a history. It is through the Messiah Jesus that the law, or the way things are, according to the spirit of life, verse 2, has set me free from the way things are according to the law that is sin and death. Again, verse 2. The law, the Jewish law, was and is a good thing. But it simply did not have the power. It was powerless, verse 3. It did not have the power it needed in the face of sin. Sin took the law and twisted it to its own purposes. I ended up in the total condemnation of chapter 7. And just think of the language that we could pick up from chapter 7. I am, according to, verse, to chapter 7, at war. I am in prison, I am wretched, I am dead. And the law could not rescue me from that. What the law could not do, however, God did. And just notice those words in verse 3, God did. There's something here about the Trinity, Jesus and the Spirit are involved in verse 2, God sends his Son in verse 3. But more importantly, what we might say is, You didn't. God did. There's a very odd uh, translation problem in verse 2. We have uh, me, 
because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Don't know why it says that. It looks like to me it was a fairly easy one to fix because it's actually set you free. And the you is not plural. Maybe that's why they felt it was awkward. Uh, it, it, it's the, if, if this had been 200 years ago, it would have been the. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus set thee free, set you as an individual. I'm going to use the, the intimate, personal, friendly, familiar form. You, Kathleen. You, Joss. You, Will. You, Phil. Paul does not want to slide over this with any sense that, yes, okay, we're talking Messiah, we're talking great big bodies of people, we're talking universal problems, but at the end of it, it's going to come down to you. And he wants us to know it's you that he's talking to. Let me emphasize that tonight. Whatever else I say, I don't want anyone sitting here thinking, well, okay, I came to church and, and the, the guy up front was talking to the whole church, whole congregation. He can't really be addressing my problem. Paul says, yes, I can. I'm addressing you. You, whoever you are tonight. The claim is that this is for you. And it wasn't you that did what was needed. Sin and law left you with a problem and you could not cure it. God did, verse 3. He sent his own son, quote, in the likeness of sinful nature. Uh, not a bit like, but not really. Not what it means, that word likeness. It's simply Paul rejecting any notion that the, the essential humanness of Jesus included sin in itself. He wants to remind us that sin is a later level, layer, lay, layered on top of what God did when he created us. So he's not saying, uh, uh, I'm sending Jesus as a sinful man. He's not saying a bit like a sinful man. He is saying a, uh, a normal man, open to sin, like all men are. And the phrase used there, uh, as a sin offering, in verse 3, is a, is a special phrase in the Old Testament and the Greek version of the Old Testament. It's used when the, the sacrifice, that the particular sin for which this was an offering, was the, the sin that comes out of ignorance. I, I can remember in the, the days when I was uh, young and foolhardy, I got the occasional ticket speeding um, in areas that uh, I didn't actually know what the speed limit was. I'm not saying that was most of the points I got on my tickets, but it did occasionally happen. I sinned out of ignorance at that point. And that kind of sin in the Jewish law was attended to with this phrase, uh, as a sin offering. And that's because Paul deliberately wants to answer in chapter 8 the problem he set up in chapter 7. I do not understand what I do. I have this problem. I know one thing, but I do something else. We're not talking in chapter 7 about, I was told that um, 
I must not travel more than a mile from my home on the Sabbath day. But, you know, I went two, just deliberately to see what would happen. Not talking about that. He's addressing the problem that is actually more likely to be yours and mine. Not the deliberate sin, but the sense that I live in a world where I, I, I can't live by these rules. Because I don't even know half the time what's going on. I do not understand what I do. So when, when he says in chapter 8, as a sin offering, he means it's, it, 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 it's uh, dealing with all the sin, even those ones. The sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross is not something either that gentle Jesus does to persuade an angry God to be forgiving. Go back again to that phrase. God did. The Trinity that is God is at work such that when Jesus dies in the sacrifice of the cross, the penalty for sin is met. The offering is effective and it is sin itself, not me, that ends up condemned. I've used this illustration before a couple of weeks ago, but I'll repeat it because I think it's helpful for those who, who weren't there. What the, what the law did, given that sin was kind of pandemic, it was everywhere, the law functioned to kind of, like a sheepdog herding sheep, really. Uh, it, it drove sin into a particular place so that a, a sacrifice, according to the law, because that's what Jesus' sacrifice is, according to the law, a single sacrifice was able to deal with sin once and for all. Just like all those sheep, all those sins got driven into one place. And then there was one solution available, the cross of Jesus. And therefore, if the penalty demanded by the law, which is being cut off from the people by death, has then in one person dealt with sin once and for all. There can be no condemnation. There's nothing left by which to be condemned. There can be no condemnation for us, and as Paul might say, for you. Towards the end of those verses, uh, Paul takes a slightly different direction. Uh, For the sake of what comes next, the law was good and righteous, When Jesus died, the demands of the law were met in him. But, verse 4, the demands of the law are also therefore met in us because we live as those who are in Christ Jesus. That's verse 1, we died in his dying. Or another way, we live according to the Spirit. Verse 1 is the summary of the summary. Verse 1 to 4, the summary. Now we're going to look at two particular Issues that open up, what we can call the sphere of sin and the sphere of the spirit. And all he's doing is he's just taking the point and driving it home again and again and again, like a screwdriver that just gets tougher and tougher to drive in as as you get towards the point of maximum screwed-inness. But he is driving it all the time because that's how he wants us to understand the basic point that's going on in verse 1. Nothing is unusual. Now, let me ask you a question. Um, I carry on my wrist this evening uh, one of these things. It's the kind of watch that still has a big hand and a little hand. 
Can you please put your hand up if you're wearing a watch like that tonight? Okay. Thank you. Please put your hand down. Please put your hand up if, you're, if you either wear a digital watch or you never need a watch anyway because you rely on your phone to tell you the time. Thank you. Okay, so we're slightly an analogue congregation as opposed to a digital congregation. Uh, that is kind of what I guess, so that's fortunate. Um, and you've probably heard that we live in a digital age. Well, perhaps we do. Uh, what was before it? An analogue age. And I gather the difference is this, that um, in a digital system, the computer is, is working um, it, and only communicating with uh, ons and offs, uh, blacks and whites, ones and zeros. Whereas analogue, to coin a phrase, uses shades of grey. So black and white is uh, digital, and um, shades of grey is analogue. Um, I'm talking about the principle, you understand, not a book. Um, the hard part of... Uh, that was just for Lucy, because I could see her leaning over and uh, exchanging improprieties with Phil Grant. Um, the, the, the hard part of these two... That'll teach you. The hard part of these two sections is that we have an analogue understanding, and Paul insists on the digital approach. We say, I'm a bit more sinful today than yesterday, a bit less sinful, but Paul only knows about two possibilities in verses 5 through to 8 and in verses 9 through to 11. In verses 5 through to 8, he's got the sphere of sin, the sphere of death. In verses uh, verses 9 to 12, he's got the sphere of the spirit or the sphere of death. All the problems that we experience, all the times we want to say, ah, but Paul, and we want him to come to terms with the realities of our life, they derive from the confusions around that distinction between his way of putting it, black and white, ones and zeros, and our way of putting it, which is a bit more and a bit less. First, there's no subtlety at all in verse 5. Those in the one sphere have their minds set on what the sinful nature desires. In fact, there's, it, 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 there's, there's actually no word live in verse 5. It's even starker. Um, but you have to make some, put something in, because the original just says, those who are according to the sinful nature are like this. It's easier to understand like that, but you, wouldn't, you can understand why they didn't translate it that way. It's not a lifestyle thing, those who live this way. It's just, that's the way it is. And in that one sphere, the mind is directed to sin. Uh, Later on, we'll find the mind is directed to the spirit. So don't underestimate the power of the mind. Don't excuse sin by saying, well, I just felt, I just felt that's just the right thing to do. I cannot tell you how many lives I've seen unravel at university with almost exactly that phrase. It's an alarming number. Don't underestimate the power of the mind. You feel this or that only because your mind has allowed you to in the first place. And when it comes uh, to uh, verse 6, again, uh, slightly, I want to complain about the translation, I'm afraid. 
Because whatever it says at the be- in the first part should, should say at the second. There's no word controlled. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind, controls, but the mind of the spirit is life and peace. I guess they wanted to avoid a sense of uh, the wrong sort of spirit being mentioned. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind of the spirit is life and peace. It's not Paul's point about controlled. That starts to speak about our job. He's still speaking of these spheres of operation in very black and white terms. Death is opposed to life, and peace is opposed to the hostility that's there in verse 7. And the word controlled isn't there in verse 8 either. Those who are in the flesh or in the sinful nature cannot please God. That's the sphere, the utterly dark, hopeless situation for the sinful nature left to its own devices. However well-seeming it may be, however good it may seem, however kind it may be, it is unable to do the good that matters. But it is wholly otherwise with the other sphere of life and spirit in verses 9 through to 11. The determining factor here is whether or not the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Christ lives in you. If yes, you belong to Christ. If not, you don't. We're not told how he, in this verses how to enter that sphere, but we learn its benefits. Verse 10, your body may be on the way to death, but your own spirit is alive because of what God did rightly in righteousness through Jesus. And if the spirit of the God who raised Jesus is in you, then the logic flows, your body too will be raised so that spirit and body together know the life of God. Right, he's laid it out. That's the kind of map. That's the way it is. But by the time he's done that, there's a question in front of him. Earlier, we learned we're free. Now, in verse 12, he says, Ah, yes, but we still have an obligation. That obligation is to live, not as though we were in the one sphere of sin and death, but as though we're in the sphere of spirit and life, which we are, and that obligation is met by the Spirit, and by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, verse 13. And the logic is not just this collection of skin and bones, it's just basically all that we are except the Spirit. If the Spirit of the God who raised Jesus is in you, your body is on its way to death, so finish it off. Get your body all that you are in line with the verdict that has been passed on you. Then you will live. And if you're most of us, and if you're paying attention to the way the words go, not just saying, oh, it's Romans 8, I like that, that's famous. If, if you're actually following what chapter 8 says, then little orange lights should be going on, and uh, warning lights on a dashboard for you. I would bet that if you were following it precisely as it went through in its logic you would be thinking, well, verses 1 to 4 were great. They were about what's happened in Jesus. Verses 5 to 11, those are great because they laid out for me the, the spheres of black and white, sin and the spirit. It's also clean and so clear. But suddenly in verse 13, there's a little word and your salvation suddenly felt rocked. It's the word if. If. In verse 13. We are hurled back into the anxiety that really it does all depend on you. Because it depends on whether 
you followed that if. Verse 13, for if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Oh, what am I to do? I've heard about the spheres. I've seen the map. But it's really all down to me. I'm straight back in chapter 7. That's where I live, chapter 7. I wanted help, I wanted answers, but I'm no better off. You've tried, Paul, you've had a good attempt. Well done. I'm glad I came to church for that, but I'm no better off. Jesus has died, Paul has spoken of the body of death, but all it boils down to is whether I put something to death or not. And that, I suggest, is why Paul barely draws breath at that point before rushing on to tell us the even better news from verses 12 to 17. Uh, Two boys were found guilty of a crime this week. I say boys, 14-year-old, 16-year-old. A little while ago, um, the... uh, a neighbouring parish, St Anne's, lost their church hall. These two boys uh, burned it down, or substantially burned it down, enough that it needs complete replacing. Uh, They were convicted uh, this last week of arson. They'll be sentenced in June. They are 14 and 16. What are the odds that they've grown up in a stable family? Now, there are things we are careful not to say in Christian churches because it's easy to introduce condemnation by the back door. And I'm about to read out some statistics which will leave some of you feeling, do they mean me? And I don't. They're just statistics. Children who grow up without fathers are five times more likely to commit suicide. They're 32 times more likely to run away from home. They're 14 times more likely to commit rape, ten times more likely to uh, spend part of their lives addicted to drugs. They're 20 times more likely to be in prison. Those lads will be sentenced next month. Imagine that they finish their sentence The prison doors or the institution doors open and they are, quote, free. Perhaps they're expecting some sort of halfway house provision. But now imagine instead of that, that in prison they come under the influence of a father figure, an older man who visits them and treats them and their mum in the best sense as family who does all he can, gives all he can, weeps weeps with them all he can, resources them and gives them all the strength he can, who leads them on another path. Well, analogies break down. The reality, of course, as many people know, is that such lads face years of suspicion ahead. But part of what Paul is doing, by rushing straight from that if in verse 13 is to go straight to the sons of God in verse 14, where there's no question of an if, no question at all. We're back in digital territory. You are or you are not a son of God. And as I always say when I'm dealing with that word, 
If you're female here tonight, then you are a son of God at this point in the argument as Paul is describing it. Not because you're, I know something about your gender that you don't, but simply because he's going to go on to talk about inheritance and being a co-heir, and in Paul's language, you could only do that if you were male. So just as men have to put up as the church of God with being the bride of Christ, you have to put up with being sons of God in this sense, and for this bit of the argument. With the spirit, according to verse 15, of adoption, as sons. Uh, I was um, walking down the street in Jerusalem a few weeks ago, as you do, um, and uh, just in front of me, I saw uh, uh, two people uh, just getting back onto the pavement, having crossed the road. Uh, one was, I know, 30-year-old dad, and behind him, just getting onto the pavement, was a, a four-year-old uh, toddler. Um, I don't speak any Hebrew, but uh, as the lad got onto the pavement, I just heard him going, Abba! Abba! It's important to say from verse 14 that the relationship we celebrate when we say Abba Father, our Father in heaven, as Jesus has taught us to use that language, is not a static one in which we merely cuddle up onto our Father's knee. But like that little lad in Jerusalem that day, we are following one who is leading. And that's what verse 14 says. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And if we are following, there is the answer to our if. If we are the sons of God, why would we not follow? I could not say to that child, why are you following that man? How daft of you, if I knew enough Hebrew to put it in those terms. Why are you bothering He just knows. He's a four-year-old. It's what you do. You follow your dad. And just as Jesus followed his dad in learning how to be an an engineer, a carpenter, if you use the older uh, language, which is almost certainly wrong because it means engineer, um, if he followed him to be an engineer, then we follow our dad, who is the same. The if comes from a sense of failure. And over the years, we've all known failures. But it's the Spirit who has told us that they were failures in the first place. And therefore, the Spirit is available to put them right, to pick ourselves up or to be picked up, set on our feet again, and to follow our dad again. And so let me finish with three questions. Same question, I suppose, but to three different people here tonight. Can you say tonight, I am not God's child? Do you want to be? It's at the heart of the good news of Jesus. You may well be sick and fed up of rules and morality. They can diagnose, but they cannot cure any more than you can be cured by an MRI scan. To enter onto sonship and the sphere of life and spirit requires only that you recognize that in Jesus upon the cross... Your penalty is paid. You. Tonight. 
because God did. Know that in your mind, and then, like a stone dropped in the pond, as the circles of logic go out, they will take you through all of chapter 8. You are a son. You are a co-heir with Jesus of the glory that will come. And if you say, well, that seems a bit too easy, well, be assured that there are many who cannot do it because there is suffering ahead, and chapter 8 will tell us about some of that. Death and demons, the powers, hardships, trouble, persecution, famine, and the sword. Second, can you say tonight, that is me? Well, rejoice and renew your determination to live out a sonship in which you call him by the tenderest name and he bestows on you the highest glory. But I suspect there'll be more in the third category. Do you find yourself tonight saying, I'm not sure? And I have to tell you from the scripture that that is an analog answer that does not compute. If you are not in the sphere of dark and sin and death, then walk in the Spirit, for you are the Son of God and walking in the light of life. Let's go back as we finish to verse 1. There is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. So don't you dare hang on to it. You can hang on to it just means you defy the word of God. Ask your mind where condemnation lurks and speak to it severely. There will be an opportunity for prayer towards the end of our service. And I'll just mention the problem that I often feel when we offer prayer after the service, especially if it's in connection with a particular issue. You might have well felt able to go to the prayer team about your ingrowing toenail, because no one's talked about ingrowing toenails. But if someone has talked about a confidence and a losing a sense of condemnation, you are reluctant to go forward for prayer, because everyone thinks I'm going forward about that. Well, if all the hosts of heaven and all the armies of the angels are nudging you to be prayed for, What on earth would keep you in your seat? Let's pray. Lord, this has been long because there's so much in chapter 8. And frankly, there's much of it, I think, that we could afford to let fade away. But we beseech you tonight, keep it in the forefront of our minds and therefore working out in the circles of our lives, that it is possible for us, even each one of us here tonight, to live without condemnation, knowing ourselves co-heirs with Christ of the glory that shall be and knowing ourselves sons in relationship, and therefore because of relationship we can add as daughters of the living God of heaven and earth. Amen.